Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that didn't start the fire. My name's Corey Hazler, and my conflict entrepreneur is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. In our final silly season episode, it's our final silly season episode, uh, before we go on our summer break, um, I've started the gin early, having a quick slurp. Um, I'm, I'm on the tea. We're going to talk about the culture wars. A recent, a recent report suggests leaders need to sit down, resolve differences, and navigate cultural change. What does that actually mean? questions by more in common uh which is set up by the the joe cox foundation and there's lots of information in that on the culture wars it talks about the idea of conflict entrepreneurs steve which i thought was quite interesting because it kind of follows on with the discussion we were having about gb news a few weeks ago and the notion of media grifters both in sort of the mainstream media and on in the sort of new media as well who are sort of trying to stoke culture wars for clicks and attention. Yeah, I, I really like that, that that turn of phrase, conflict entrepreneur, because uh, it describes what they are doing in terms of like creating conflict, but also points out that it's not actually about the cause or, or anything for, for those people. It is about, you know, generating revenue and clicks and money for themselves rather than, you know, a wider meaningful political point i like that terminology i think that is something that should actually be more widely mm. um, adopted in terms of like the discourse around these sorts of things because it, it summarizes things up wonderfully and it also it's, it's a good term to use because it it sounds legitimate and it doesn't but it doesn't sound insulting if you get what i mean but it is so what well, as opposed to conflict wankers or something i mean pretty much i mean that's basically what we've been calling them up until now I don't know. I think we've tried to be relatively restrained. Um, oh, this is true. We've been calling them Phil Willis's, but... Uh... There's a lot of polling in this. There's a lot of focus group information in this. And one of the big takeaways, I suppose, of the one of the big conclusions of the report is that the view of the public is more nuanced than these conflict entrepreneurs and more nuanced than often a lot of the views that politicians were putting across as well. There's a few examples. The two that stand out were the, the story... Uh, or non-story really a few weeks ago of the uh, a few months ago of the the students at an Oxford college who took down a picture of a queen and the uh, statue of Edward Coulson the Bristol slaver that was was put down essentially and this is across the the groups of this the more conservative to the more liberal uh, or more progressive views and it turns out the yeah there's there's a torrential rainstorm at the moment listeners so uh, you've got the climate apocalypse happening on the, on the episode, if you might be able to, to hear it. So apologies if that's the case. Um, but you ha- in both those instances, you had essentially people who were both saying that, well, actually, young people will do silly things. And actually, maybe what students do in Oxford College probably isn't a front page story and doesn't need the education secretary weighing in on. Um, and equally... Edward Coulson, well, we probably don't want statues of slavers up in our city centres. Doesn't necessarily mean that we want a load of a load of people just tearing it down and dumping it in a river. Oh, very sensible statements. 
Like, I, I don't I think it's very difficult to find anything to disagree with on those. I suppose the problem is that Keir Starmer did try on the, on the Coulson one specifically, did say that it was wrong to take down a statue in that way, but it should have been taken down a long time before, and was roundly mocked for doing so. Probably by, to be fair, a lot of conflict entrepreneurs on Twitter. And also people on who are meant to be on his own side, who are just looking for reasons to critique him. Um, in fact, most of the um, most of the people that I saw actually critiquing Starmer on that point were of the left, quote unquote, um, basically saying, "Oh, he's not actually sticking up for anything meaningful here. He's just trying to, you know, too centrist, etc., etc., etc." When guess guess what? Starmer's view is in line with the country's. Well, I suppose a big theme of the report is that politicians do need to sort of manage change and that people are looking less for sound bites from politicians but are looking almost to have some more nuanced language through this. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, if you were... And, and perhaps there was a bit of a missed opportunity here for Labour, but with, um, like... We know that there are statues of uh, that may or may not be problematic across lots of different parts of the uh, parts of the country maybe like as a as a as a way to kind of like manage that change and actually look like you are being pro, uh, proactive starmer should have um led off not just with yes we should you know pulling it down pulling the statue down is bad it should have been gone down earlier he should have there should have been an announcement or a statement along the lines of and this is how we can Im- Im- uh, do that so here is a outline of a process to be kind of like actually properly done at a later point obviously because this is a reactive policy um basically saying which says these sorts of things you this is how you get the communities involved with them and then like people here is a process whereby we make it you know a a a, a law maybe similar to like foi or or, or or whatever where you say can you please take a look at these statues if people if enough people request it you know that that, that kind of thing and then you get the discourse mm-hmm. going you get the discussion going they could call it a statue of limitations, perhaps. I'm actually impressed by that one. Good job. Well, there you go. Say a few sips of gin, and suddenly <laughs> the quality of the puns they, they do improve. You're breaking the uh, no alcohol in the podcast rule. That is true. <laughs> I'm sure we can try and weave Donald Trump into this somehow. Um, but I suppose maybe a slight challenge to that is some of the more I thought reasoned critiques of what Stan was saying is saying it should have been gone through the usual channels is that people ha- in Bristol have been trying to go through the usual the usual channels to get the Colson statue down for years but have been blocked yeah I mean usually I think by Tory councillors in Bristol so in a sense they, there was a blockage there that yeah they needed to get taken yeah. down through normal means yeah but, ab- 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 absolutely which is again why you know if you if you if you're had a process that was formalized in some capacity and you know not necessarily you do it like this you know but like this is just the only thing i can think of off the top of my head you have like a really local referendum which says um you know if if, 50, if over 50 percent of the people that vote on this want this statue gone we will take it down that way the the you know the some except something tells me that a re- if we're trying to not divide the country into two opposing camps, I'm not like saying a referendum is the way to do it. And um, that's the only thing I could think of off the top of my head. That's why you have very people who are more intelligent than me, kind of like working to flesh these policies out in Westminster, rather than me trying to come up with them off the top of my head in well, a podcast. Well, so what? Well, um, just, uh, speaking of more intelligent people trying to find solutions, one thing I thought you could use was. Oh. Oh, 
the quality of the segways, they burn. They burn with self-righteousness. Um, I'm going on strike. <laughs> but so one solution is essentially maybe some sort of citizen panel or participatory yeah. democracy. And again, this is... Uh, so just thinking of, say, the example of, of Ireland when they had uh, wanted to change the law on abortion, where they have a citizens panel, they bring in experts, and that panel comes up with a view. And actually, the view of that citizen panel that was put to a referendum in terms of changing a... Imagine having a referendum to change a specific bit of a constitution where you knew what the outcome would be, rather than having an open-ended referendum on some random thing. It would never happen here. Madness. Um, but that... That citizens panel probably went further than the politicians would have done it. It meant the politicians could be bolder because they had the covering of public opinion. And that's why I think it's not just about sort of politicians managing change, whatever that means. It's a bit wishy-washy. But I think some form of deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, is it's one of the one of the issues. And again, regular listeners will know my love of sort of constitutional issues. And I think the the issue you have at the moment with representative democracy is that the electorate at the moment is so much more educated in terms formally than it ever has been. But in terms of the effect, the, the route in decision making, it's still electing people every five years who do the decisions for them. And if you had some form of citizens panels and deliberative democracy, um, that could be a, a sort of a way of getting the the people into the constitution not through a referendum which as you've yeah, seen yeah. can be quite divisive but that could work on statutes you know if they've if they had that yeah i mean as you were saying that my first thought was what you'd probably actually find in that instance is that people would say yes the statue should come down um but also like the statue is probably a part of the history Coulson is a part of the history we should probably put it in a museum and put it, give it the proper context, you know, with with actual plaques and everything to explain it, so that people can know one who he who he is, know the bad he did, but also the wider some of the other things that he did as well, some of which are good, quote unquote, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, we can do a ten sixty six and all that. Yeah, be a good thing. Think, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and. So, but, um, and, and mayhaps that's basically, I think, where, where what we're going to end up with in the in in. in in the real world anyway, in that it got pulled down. It's going to end up in a museum, I believe. I think it's there now. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and rather than being put back up where it was before, and it's going to be given the context, not just obviously of, of, of his history, but of that, why it was pulled down in, re in the relation to, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, citizen panels and those sorts of things actually probably are a very good way to, to kind of like manage those sorts of uh uh, th those sorts of things and again it would be wonderful if Labour could <laughs> announce such things as being part of policy but I mean I think in terms of where Labour is on constitutional issues at this moment actually I think we're in a quite a sensible place um, he says waiting to see what the conference decision on PR is might have to have be a lot of drinking on that podcast for me in terms of if we're talking trying to talk about sort of managing change navigating change the report sort of aligns a lot of these issues so it talks about ways in which politicians have managed change in the past. So it's talked about, say, setting up the welfare state, the introduction of the Windrush generation on the Blair and Cameron governments did on um, on gay rights and, and, and the Jenkins reforms, not the Jenkins reforms, listeners, the Jenkins reforms. This is when I got a little bit suspicious. I assume they mean Roy Jenkins, unless Bernard Jenkins brought in some truly historic reforms I'm not aware of. 
the Jenkin reforms. Makes me sick. But we'll move on. The thing with all those reforms, though, is that they were bitterly opposed at the time, and some are still opposed. Yeah. And assuming that somehow we can sort of muddle through and be nice about it, I find a little bit reductionist. And I suppose the, the, the other thing sort of related to that is um, it says, it, it tries to sort of say that, wait, that there's not, too many fundamental divides now because only 20% of the people see leave and remain as being the main divide in our politics now which in a way is fair because as we've sort of talked about public discussions moved on now that Boris Johnson has delivered this glorious Brexit that we have now that he's now trying to renegotiate but I suppose as we've talked about on the podcast books like Brexit Land very explicit in this and it's been a bit of a theme throughout the five years that we've been stuck in this bunker is there is a cultural clear vision education is based on cultural values rather than the class values is is the kind of main political divide now so uh, over things like age and education home building the fact that brexit your your brexit vote could be predicated on your issue, on your view of things like the death penalty and, uh, and gay marriage and women's rights and the the problem is that that cultural divide has cut across political parties and the conservative party in part got a majority um, playing up these sort of cultural divides, it feels a little bit naive to sort of say that that divide doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, an element of naivety to, to the way the, the, the more common report kind of discusses some elements um, of, uh, of, of, of the current, current situation. It's like their interpretation is as favourable as they could their interpretation is it almost looks like it's viewed through rose-tinted glasses in, in in some ways. Whilst the the findings and the data and things they they provided are are interesting, um, and as you say, in some ways quite hopeful in like you know the 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 the, the public are nuanced on these things rather than you know completely split. Which means if it's nuanced, and that means you can find a a, a workable compromise which leaves most people content and happy. Um, and uh, whilst whilst the but the overall view of it, as you say, when you turn around and say, but actually all of these things don't matter, it's just like well, no, clearly it 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 does. So there is some definite kind of like glasses on that are a rose in colour. Uh, I feel. Well, especially when if there's something that's sort of pretty clear from the past decade is that in terms of economics, in terms of class. Um, there are lots of people who are very, very unhappy with the status quo at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and that is, again, mainly because of sort of standard living and economics and the cost of living. But there is a genuine, I think, thirst for change, which you can see in... in the. It's one of the things, I think, that actually explains the sort of 2017 and 2019 election results. I don't think there's many unifying theories as to why 2017-2019 went their particular ways. Most analyses, I think, seem to explain one of those elections, not the other. But I think you could easily see the results in both as being essentially people who are majorly pissed off and would quite like things to change. Yeah, Not necessarily the same people in both instances, but there's definitely a sort of things are rotten the state of Denmark effect, I think, going on. Absolutely. And actually, in terms of the solutions, it talks about, um, say, it talks about expert panels, maybe rather than citizen panels on and it, or, and um, love it, fans of our podcast last week in which Steve and I have a minor breakdown about Gavin Williamson will enjoy the one of the solutions put forward in the report is that schools should do something on this. 
Oh, um, God. Or, or rather, it's that schools are already doing things on this and they should tell people that they're doing it. I don't even see how that helps solve the problem. Giving publicity to curriculum doesn't... I could, Well, I, I suppose schools should be teaching people how to think critically and how to be morally upstanding citizens and, and debate and reason well. That's fine. Yeah. It <laughs> does anything, but I, I feel like the solutions are mainly: can we just be nice and get along and sit down yeah, and sing kumbaya? And 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 also um, of a very technocratic nature, um, giving you the, uh, the the baseline is: well, let's just get the experts to solve it. We don't know what we're talking about here, clearly, but we could get the experts who do. And well, the, the the problem like that works really, really well if you're dealing with science or technology and things like that, because actually there probably is one specific thing that's wrong and the experts can come in and fix it. That doesn't necessarily work when you're talking about interpretations of history or, you know, interpretations of culture and and things like that, which is essentially what most of the culture war is. Because, like, like, we could bring in a load of historians to, to talk about Colston. Great, that's fine. But depending on which ones you bring in, you're going to get very different yeah. views. But I think... In a citizens panel, you would bring in those historians, and you could bring in historians with different views, and that and that's fine. But, I, but, I, they're, but they're they're preaching. Well, but basically, they're just trying to persuade. In effect, it's almost like it's a jury a jury system in the sense that the citizens panel are listening to that evidence that's being presented by by the two opposing views, and then kind of going, you know, um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and they're coming up with the synthesis. So I'm taking everything on board to find something that that works. It's quite literally the Hegelian dialectic. He says, going back to his degree, very briefly. So yeah, that that's fine. But like, just get experts together on these things. All you all you end up with is a load of people subtweeting each other um, about how Matt Goodwin or someone like that isn't actually, you know, a fair representation of their, uh, you know, their field or whatever, which happens a lot online you know, across all fields. It feels like it ignores the context in which. The education secretary is quite happy criticising students at Oxford and it makes the front page of the Daily Mail. And you have, as you say, this environment where conflict entrepreneurs on both left and right are quite happy to stoke a lot of anger so they can get more followers on Patreon and more likes and retweets. Yeah. I mean, we, we just plumb our existential despair, to be honest, to, to get Patreon viewers. But also we don't tend to do it on Twitter because there's an interesting thing from Helen Lewis on her sort of newsletter, which is essentially that I think podcasts do try and be antiviral in a sense. We're not trying to spread hatred for clicks. We are trying to make sense of things, even if it sometimes fails. Something I do think is interesting in the report is its um, talk about academic language. And um, I think it, it specifically talks about white privilege and different views on white privilege. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's an interesting, it, ironically, actually, given how much it talks about we don't want to be importing American things here. I was reminded of a poll I saw this week about or, a poll of Latino voters, and it was like, which what term would you like to use for Latino? And only five percent of Latinos said they wanted to use Latinx as a term, which again I think is one that's used by a very very online left, a very and it's it's people using academic terms. Or campaigning slogans like "defund the police," um, which again are it, don't really make sense in that context, but almost be, 
only makes sense to a small amount of people online. They, they don't translate well to the wider audience. You need to be a very specific sort of person to actually kind of grasp the um, the, the nuances, going back to that again, of like what, what's being talked about. Because I'm sure we've talked about this before, but defund the police doesn't actually mean defund the police. Um, it means stop the police for having to be overworked and deal with things that social workers should be doing. But obviously that's not a very snappy slogan. Um, yeah. I saw an interview with Cory Bush this week, who I think is one of the new members of the House of Representatives, and she said that she was willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on private security firms for herself, but was happy for... But it says that the police should be defunded. Which... Intellectually is interesting, because yeah. you've sort of got the the American left of turning to anarcho-capitalists. <laughs> that sounds about right for the Democratic Party, actually. It's like an end point. Um... <laughs> They're just trying to beat Joe Manchin halfway. <laughs> Hello, Patrick, by the way. Yeah. We didn't give him his full title, but um, I'm pretty sure. We... That, oh, yeah. For Patreon viewers, for Patreon listeners only, I think. Um, but, but, so... Again, just can you imagine if Martin Luther King in the sixties was talking about Claude Levi Strauss and stuff rather than I have a dream? Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, just 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 to take it back to that that core point. I mean, language matters because it shapes discourse. Um, and he's just saying that. But um, and and certainly the left as as a whole has a habit of adapt, adopting language from academia. Um, in, in in certain forms and in, and in some in some areas like that kind of is is fine and, and normal and it becomes normalized like straight gay homo- homosexual heterosexual um um cis um non cis all uh, trans all of that those are all things that get utilized or were utilized more in academic contexts before they made the transition into um you know the the everyday lexicon um, the, the the issue is, though, the vast majority of the things that the left talks about don't make that transition um, when, when they're using that uh, academic language, which just creates a language barrier for people to engage with left, leftist ideas or left-wing ideal, uh, ideas and debates, because you immediately have to have an understanding of, of this, 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 this terminology. Um, and... Certainly online, when you ask questions about these things, you end up kind of being told, oh, it's your job to educate yourself. I'm like, I'm asking you because I want to learn. And, you know, all of these different things come into it. And like suddenly you you can't participate and you can't learn because the people who can do it are saying you're not allowed to be here. So there is there's some really interesting stuff in the report about about those learning opportunities, I think, and about how often I think it is that sort of generation divide where young, maybe I think a lot of the younger generation assume want, want to assume the older generation should know a lot more about these issues than they do. And I think there's a, almost a bit of a worry about what how you... Um, it, feeling very uncomfortable about how you ask questions about it without yeah. being labeled as sexist or racist or, or people saying that they're scared of losing their jobs yeah. 
but but yeah, that gives you a very kind of uh, a real example of how the um, of how the that academic language and the discourse that's utilised on the left not only prevents that you know progress, but also prevents bringing people on board just more 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 specifically as well. Because if you do have people who are for whatever reason feel like they can't that if they do ask questions and go and and they they may very well be open to changing their minds or genuinely are interested in learning and and bettering themselves but they feel they can't ask questions about it resulting in them because of out of a fear that you know it could go viral in some capacity and then they lose their job uh, in, in, in whatever that that puts people off which means people aren't going to be reaching out which means you can't bring more allies on board, which means you can't bring about change. I do find educate yourself a rather annoying phrase that's just, I think, I think used because it's... It's almost like the antithesis of we must agree to disagree. Yeah. It's more, the only reason that we disagree is because you don't know enough stuff. Yeah. Which is an unfortunate way in which to set out an argument. Yeah, because it effectively turns around and says, you are an idiot. You know, it's not... You know, it, it's not a way to win people over. And also, with so many of these things, like, yeah, I can Google this stuff, but that doesn't necessarily give me a meaningful, you know, view of anything. It just gives me some definitions. Like, you actually need people who are engaged with it to provide links, to provide... Like, it, it, it's basically like... It, it's like saying these academic things that we are discussing, we're utilising academic language. Um you know, uh, if if this if if this were a um, you know a university student and it was just like I'll just Google it, you can understand all of those things. That person would not do very well on their degree. Well, also, we, we've we've talked before on the podcast about people who end up in rabbit holes. Yeah, like the way that a lot of social media algorithms work is essentially sucking you into more and more extreme content. Mm-hmm. You know, you start listening to not enough champagne, and then before you know it, you end up with more extreme content like uh never mind the bar charts hello mark by the way and then before you know it you're on to live dem pod and then signing up for membership of joining extreme groups like the fabians (laughs) (laughs) with their leaflets their diabolical leaflets well i've run out of gin so it's pretty good time to end the episode we will be taking a short break after this we'll be back in september for more educating uh, in the meantime, I might try and record a couple of Patreons about summer reading, summer listening, uh, and just ramble on a little bit. Um, if you want to hear those, what you're going to have to do, Steve, head over to patreon.com slash notenoughchampagne, where for but a few pounds every month, you can gain access to uh, to these unique episodes, which are available only to our uh, backers, our champagners over there. Um, yeah, everything um, that we make goes towards running the podcast, and as long as we're, you know, we're covering the costs, we can keep doing this as long as we can stand each other. About 20 more minutes. Yeah, G- given the state of the puns. Our website is nothingofchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash nothingofchampagne. You can follow us on Twitter at No Champagne Pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy holidays. Mm-hmm.